it comes to Christianity, there's really a question that, that begs to be asked, that it's at the heart of Christianity and really at the heart of all of Scripture. It's painted all over the Old and the New Testament, and really a lot of times it's something that is just assumed. And especially if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, or you've been around Christians for any amount of time, uh, it's an assumption that can go unnoticed. But when it comes down to it, it's a question that has to be asked. It's an essential question, and maybe it's something that you've even wrestled with at some point. And that question is, why does Jesus have to die? Why does Jesus have to die? That is, why can't God, and for that matter, Christianity, be all that it is and not have Jesus dying at the center of it? Packed into that question, I mean, there's other things that undergird that. Why does God have to punish people? To, why does God have to punish sin at all? Why, does God, why can't God just forgive people? and not punish anybody. We don't punish people that we forgive or demand that they owe something. We just forgive them. Why does God have to accomplish salvation? He could have done it any other way. Why through seemingly a barbaric and antiquated thing like penal substitution that a person has to go into place to appease some God? Why isn't obeying the teachings of Jesus enough? Just, I'm going to do what Jesus says. I'm going to be a good person. And why can't God accept that? Why does Jesus have to be punished for sins he didn't even commit? And also, what kind of father allows his son to be murdered when he has the power to stop it? And all of that comes from that question, why does Jesus have to die? And the answer to that question, the answer that the Bible gives, might surprise you. The answer might surprise you. And the answer that Scripture gives is Jesus had to die because of the glory of God. Jesus had to die because of the glory of God. You see, a lot of people, even sometimes Christians, we, we get this mixed up, that we think the focal point of what God did on the cross through Christ is mainly about us, about how we benefit, about how God has loved us and forgiven us. And don't get me wrong, those are good benefits and we should enjoy them. But that's primarily not what the cross is about. The cross is about God's glory. The cross is the clearest revelation of God to us to tell us what he is like and what he is about. That is what the cross stands as above everything else. And so my goal today is to help you perceive God's goodness to you in glorifying himself in the death of Jesus. That God actually does good to you by upholding his glory in the death of Christ. And so God glorified himself in many ways to the cross. And really, this is the most prevalent topic in the New Testament. This could be a series for the next year, but I got to narrow it down to some stuff for you guys in 35 minutes. And so we're going to go through four points. And it's going to be the glory of God's justice from the cross the glory of God's holiness from the cross, the glory of God's love as seen through the cross, and the glory of God's sovereignty in the cross. Now, kids, if you're here, it's all the rural kids. 
and anyone else. Your assignment today is when we go through our outline, we're going to have a cross up there like this, and there's going to be different words that appear on there. And if you write all those different words and also write a verse that I'm going to tell that goes along with that, just the reference, you can email my wife and you will get a prize. So uh, go ahead and do that. If you need to email, your parents can help you. Uh, but that's your assignment for today, kids. So before we begin, there's an underlying premise really in, in that statement, my goal, that just has to be addressed. And that's, why is God's self-glorification good? Why is God making everything about himself and his glory a good thing? Why is it right that God should make the purpose and the end of all things and all of creation, of all of existence, about himself and his glory? I mean, it sounds like a self-centered thing to do. We have that phrase, you're not the center of the universe. Why is God, why can God claim that title? And simply the answer is, is because God is the measure of all things. There is no one and nothing greater than God. He is the center of the universe. He can actually claim that title and say, yes, it is all about me. And so to give you guys an illustration, think of the Constitution in the United States. What the Constitution stands as is really the supreme law of the United States. There's no one that's supposed to be above the Constitution. There's no one who does not have to submit to that Constitution. The Constitution has no higher authority above it of which it has to appeal to. It is what it is. God is similar to the Constitution. There is no standard above God by which we can bring his actions into judgment. To say, how do we know whether God is doing right or wrong? God decides that. God is the Constitution. He is that standard. He is that law. He is that perfection. And so why does God point to himself why does God point to his goodness? Because there's no one more good than God. Why does God point to his own beauty? Because there's nothing more beautiful than God. Why does God point to his power? Because there's nothing more powerful than God. For lack of a better way to say it, God's sort of stuck being the most awesome person in the universe and there's nothing he's going to do about it. That's what he is, and that's what he always has been and what he always will be. And so that is why God has an unwavering commitment to uphold his own glory, his own purpose, as his own existence as the purpose of all things. Because he is the measure of all of it. And so we're going to see how God glorifying, bring attention to that is actually for our benefit. And we see that most clearly at the cross. And we're going to start with the glory of God's justice. The glory of God's justice. And you see, there's a seeming paradox that happens in the Bible. And if you're not reading it carefully, you may have not caught it. And what it tells us, uh, the paradox or the seeming paradox is what it tells us about God. It tells us that God is perfectly just and that God is perfectly merciful at the same time. He is perfectly just and he is perfectly merciful. I think the most clear 
verses that it's spelled out is in Exodus 36. So I'll show you guys this. Exodus 36, verses, uh, uh, chapter 34, verses 6 through 7. The Lord passed before him, so this is Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands. And here it is, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Do you see the conundrum there? How does God forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin, and yet by no means clear the guilty? Isn't it by forgiving iniquity? Isn't that exactly what he is doing? Clearing the guilty? How is it possible that God can do and be both of these things at the same time? By definition, showing someone mercy is not to exercise justice. When you show someone mercy, you say, this is what you have earned, the punishment you have earned for your actions. And when I have mercy on you, I am not going to give you what you do deserve. I'm not going to give it to you. You will not be punished. And justice is just the opposite. You did this, and here's the consequence, and here's what you have earned, and it is fair, it is right, that you get exactly what you earned. That's what justice is. And so by definition, these things, two things seem to cancel each other out. And on top of that, God has grace towards us. That God shows, shows grace towards those whom he's loved. That he has favor towards them, even though they haven't earned it. Grace is, while mercy is when you don't get what you do deserve, grace is when you get something you don't deserve that's beneficial. That you didn't earn this gift. You didn't do anything to get it, but I'm going to give it to you. And that's what grace is, and God gives that as well. To give you guys sort of a, a practical example of how this might play out in, in someone's real life, think of the story in the Bible of David and Bathsheba and what happened between those two individuals. Now stop for a moment and think if you were Bathsheba's father. You had a man who looked on your daughter with perverted eyes, who took your daughter, murdered your son-in-law, lied about it, covered it up. He's a, David was a liar. He was an adulterer. He was a deceiver. He abused his authority as king. And then what do you hear from the prophet Nathan? You hear that God, after David's request to forgive him, forgives him. If you were that father, you would be ballistic. What? Are you serious? Do you realize what he has done to me, God? What he has done to my daughter and my family? And you're just going to forgive him? Not even a human being who is a judge would let someone off the hook. Even your own law says that David should be stoned to death for his adultery. And you're just going to forgive him? He gets to keep his kingship? And you're actually going to love him and show him grace and favor the rest of his life? Are you kidding me, God? It's a problem. And so how is it that God can forgive sins like David, forgive sin like ours, and still remain just and be merciful? The answer we find at the cross. And Paul tells us about us. In Romans 3.23, it says this to 26, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And then it says this, this was to show God's righteousness or his justice. Something happened at the cross that showed that God was not only merciful, but also just. Because in his divine forbearance, it says he passed over former sins. He chose not to punish some people for their sins. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be the just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so Jesus' death on the cross is the answer. Jesus was punished for the sins that David committed. God postponed that judgment until Christ came. And so Jesus paid the penalty that was owed to David. David should have died, but he didn't. Christ died. And Jesus also had the righteousness that David could not obtain. And so Christ's death makes it known that God is just, that he is merciful. He is both of these things, and how he can do that is through the cross. In the death of Jesus, we see the simultaneous, it's the outpouring on God's wrath of all that is wrong, all that is evil, with the simultaneous extension of forgiveness and kindness towards us not having to bear that wrath because Christ did it for us. He was our substitute. And so what's the application? Well, one thing is that no sin will go unpunished. That should be a comforting note for Christians. No sin will go unpunished. Have you ever wondered at times when you look into the world, you see evil has taken hold of seemingly everything. Where is God's justice in all of this? What about all the murder, God? What about all the slaughtered unborn children, the millions that happen every year around the world? What about all the backstabbing liars? What about all the racism? What about the slavery, Lord? What about the sexual abuse? What about the deceitful politicians? Where's their justice? Where is it coming from? And through the death of Jesus on the cross, we see that God will punish every sin. There's only two options. Christ pays for sin or individuals do. Christ pays for your sin or you do. And that's what hell is. The punishment for your sin for eternity. So the cross assures us that God will punish every wrongdoing in his timing. He doesn't just sweep things under the rug and forget about them. He will execute justice for every sin that has ever been committed. But the second thing to realize is that no person is too far from God's mercy. Whether it's you or someone in your life, no one is too far from God's mercy. There's no sin too great that God can't pay for it. Perhaps you are one of those people in the categories I mentioned. You are the adulterer. You are the murderer. You are the deceitful leader. You are the liar. Whatever it is you may be, Christ's death can pay for that if you have trusted in him for forgiveness. If you've trusted in Christ to take on that punishment for your sins, 
Not only that, but God can give you the purpose for righteousness that you can't have in Christ. And so you can walk with confidence that no matter what your sin is, that Christ has paid for it in full and it is forgiven. The Bible says that God, when he forgives us, he says, I will remember your sins no more. It's not that he actually forgets. He actively says, I will not dwell on it. I will not see you this way because I have forgiven you. And that's what happens because of the death of cross, the, Jesus' death on the cross. But moving on, we move to the glory of God's holiness. We also see at the cross. God's holiness is really his inherent, his absolute greatness. You could say it's almost his godness, his utter otherness, his utter, there is nothing quite, there's nothing that comes even in comparison to God. God is that different and that unique and that set apart. That is who God is. And so to give you guys an example of how to think a little bit about the holiness of God and the way Scripture presents it, I think it's quite an amazing thing, to be honest, if you know anything about outer space, that we could still sweat here on a hot day on earth. We could still sweat here on a hot day on earth. What do I mean by that? When we look at the sun, the sun is 93 million miles away from earth. That means you could go around the earth 2,000 times and some over. That's how far the sun is from us. And on top of that, the sun, it takes its rays traveling at 186 miles per second. Not miles per hour. 186,000 miles per second. It takes it eight minutes to get here. And during that eight minutes, it's traveling through space, which has an average temperature of about negative 455 degrees Fahrenheit. Space is cold. Space is very cold. And despite that distance, despite that time and the coolness of space, we still, still can feel the scorch of the sun of here on a hot day. And we know that because at its core, you know what the sun burns at? 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Space is cold, but the sun is hot, very hot. And so what the sun does is it gives us a microcosm, a small glimpse of understanding the holiness of God. See, the question is, how is anything ever, how is there ever going to be any type of planet that is inhabitable, that is close to the sun, without the sun just utterly scorching and obliterating that planet? By the way, there is no planets besides Mercury, and that's exactly what it is, a scorched planet. How are we even going to get close to that? And similar with God, how are we as sinful human beings and creatures going to even get close to the pureness of who God is and his complete removal from all sin as sinful, human, frail beings? How are we going to do that? That's exactly the problem. That's exactly what God meant when he told Moses. Moses asked him, God, I want to see your glory. And God said, Moses, you can't look at my face and live. Nobody can. Nobody can. And that's what he meant. I mean, read this description. Look at this description with me from Exodus 19. This is when God comes down 
to meet Moses with the Israelites. It sounds like the sun is coming down on top of this mountain. Look at the language that he's used. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast so that all the people in the camp trembled. There was millions of people witnessing this and they were all trembling. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Now Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in what? It had descended on it in fire. And the smoke went up like the smoke of a kiln. And the whole mountain trembled greatly. There's a mountain with a fireball on it with an earthquake happening. That is a scary thing to be witnessing and that someone invites you to come see. You don't want to be near that thing. And he says, and then the sound grew louder and louder and Moses spoke and God answered him in the thunder. That when God spoke, it was thunder coming out from that mountain as if the earthquake and the fire and the smoke weren't enough. But then just a few chapters later, look at what Moses says to the Israelites. Exodus 24, 8, he says, And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Now, I don't know if you connect these two, but if I was an Israelite and I just saw what was on that mountain, I would have said to Moses, come again? You want us to do what? You want us to build a tent so we can put that thing inside of our camp? That's what you want us to do? That's what he told you to do? We might as well sign our death wish. I don't want to do that, Moses. That's how I would have reacted. And when you look in scripture, the people had the right reaction. The repeated reaction consistently of people seeing God or even seeing someone who's been in the presence of God. The primary emotion that always grips them at first is fear. That is the first thing they feel. Look at these. Some examples. Moses in the burning bush. Moses, it says Moses was afraid to look upon the face of God. The people of Israel in this example at Mount Sinai. Isaiah in his heavenly vision when he sees into the throne room of God and he says, God, woe is me because I am a man who, of unclean lips who lives with a people of unclean lips. You know what he's saying to God? God, I am disintegrating. I am wasting away. Help me. I cannot see the Lord of hosts in what I am. Zechariah at the temple before the birth of John the Baptist, the shepherds in the field who hear the good news from the angels, Mary visited by the angel, he has to tell her, Mary, you don't have to be afraid, this is a greeting of good news. And lastly, John, John the apostle, Jesus' best friend on earth, who ate with Jesus, he slept with Jesus, he preached with Jesus. For three straight years, every day, you know what happens when John sees Jesus as he really is, the glorified Christ? John says, I felt like a dead man before his feet. I was so afraid. I just fell down like I was dead. There was nothing I could, nothing I could say, nothing I could do. That's how terrifying it was to see him that way. And so how is God going to reveal his holiness to frail and sinful creatures like us without destroying us? And the answer is through the death 
of Christ. You see, not only do we see the holiness of God and Christ's perfect life, but through his death, God actually uh, uses us as a conduit of his holiness, that his holiness would actually shine through Christians. That what happened on that mountain, that God you saw, if you're a Christian in the Holy Spirit, that is who lives inside of you. That kind of power is the power that God has given you to live your Christian life and honor him. And so to look at a couple of verses from Colossians and Corinthians, they read this, and you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you what? Holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is the effect of God's holiness in Christ applied to you to make you holy and to make you blameless. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple, that you, God's spirit dwells within you? If anyone, destroy God, anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For the, God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And so you are perfectly holy if you are in Christ. Hebrews 10, 14 says, For by a single offering... The one sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, he perfected for how? How long? All time, those who are being sanctified. He permanently and fully made them holy at the cross. And so if you put your faith in Christ, what you need to know is that when God sees you, the lens he sees you through is not your sin. He doesn't see all the things that you have done wrong if you have trusted in Christ. What he sees is his own son's righteousness and holiness and not yours. Not because of anything you have done, but because what Christ has done for you. That's what God sees. It could be rightly said that when God said at Jesus' baptism, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, because of what Christ has done on your behalf, God looks at you and says, you are my son, you are my daughter, and I am well pleased with you because of what my son has done on your behalf. The second thing to consider is that God cares what you do with your body. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. You see, it's not that God tells us to act in a holy way with our body because that makes us holy. If you're a Christian, God tells you to conduct your body with holiness because it's already made holy. Because of what Christ has accomplished. He's saying, act like what you are. Do not desecrate the temple of God. That has been made holy through Christ's blood and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Don't desecrate the temple of God with pornography, with adultery, with fornication, with lustful thinking, with gluttony, with whatever it may be. Do not desecrate God's temple. Don't trample underfoot the holiness of God that dwells in you. we got to move on past God's holiness 
to perhaps the most familiar one, and that's God's love. It's God's love. And it's an odd thought when you think about God's love displayed in the cross. In what other context would we say a father who allows his son to be murdered really by his enemies and has the power to stop it, that that is a loving act? That that is a loving act. There's almost no context I can think of where any earthly father that we would say, yeah, that was love. That was a good thing. No father is giving his son up for enemies. But the truth is that forgiveness always comes at a cost. And the higher the value of what has been sinned against, the greater the cost. So let me give you an example for this. If I go, you can go ahead to the next slide. If I go to a junkyard and I scrape the side of this junker, I might get in trouble. Someone might call the cops. I'm trespassing. I might be like, why are you doing that? But the car's not worth that much, so they're probably just going to tell you, like, get out, scram, don't come back. Now, if I, take that sa- if I take that same scenario, same key, same type of damage, and I go to do a used car lot, and I scratch that car, the consequences are going to get a little bit higher. And the reason is because the car is worth more. The car is worth more. And so I probably will get arrested. I probably will get fined. I'll probably be paying some damages on that used car. Now, going even further, if I go to a Lamborghini lot and I go to that showroom and I, same key, same damage, and scratch that Lamborghini, oh, you can bet there's going to be consequences. There's going to be a fine. I'm going to be paying for something there. And so what it shows us is the value of what is damaged or offended changes the punishment. It changes the punishment. And there's nothing of more value that is offended, that is spurned, that is wrong than when we sin and we choose not to glorify God. God is infinitely more valuable than a Lamborghini or a giant house or whatever it may be. And our sin against an infinitely worthy God is horrendous. That's why hell exists. It defines for us that's how heinous our sin is against God. That's how horrible it is. And forgiveness is not without cost. I mean, we know this even in our daily life. If you ever forgive someone of a debt, it's not like that money just disappears. You're absorbing that on yourself. You're saying, I will take the hit. You owed me $100, you owed me $1,000. I'll just take that on myself. I'm going to lose out on something, but I'm just going to take it on myself so you don't have to suffer with paying me back. And so why isn't Jesus' death some sort of cosmic child abuse and, and sending his son to die for his enemies? Because Jesus was not only the son of God, he was God. And that is how the Trinity helps us make sense of the, God, of the cross. God is three persons in one being. When the Son of God died, God died. When the Son of God died, God died. God took upon himself the wrath in human flesh that we deserved. So we would not have to. God absorbed that justice into himself. And why would God do that? 
It's certainly not out of obligation. It's not because we're great and we're lovely and we're just easy to love. I think he did it for two reasons. I think the first is to show the infinite worth of his own glory. That yes, it takes a perfect being who is God to make right the way that we have wronged God and sinning against him. That Christ as the perfect sacrifice, that's what it would take to make things right. Because God is that valuable. Because that God is that great. But I think the second reason is to show the magnitude of God's love for his own children, for his own people. It says this in Romans 5, 6 8, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came just at the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who was especially good, But God showed his what? Great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. There's a great quote. It's a great book. I recommend you read it. It's by John Piper called 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. It shows you how many points this sermon could have been. It could have been 50 points. So we got it down to four. So that's a good thing. But here's the quote. It says, The measure of God's love for us is shown by two things. One is the degree of his sacrifice in saving us from the penalty of our sin. The other is the degree of unworthiness that that we had when he saved us. There was no more valuable sacrifice that God could have even given to show his love more. There's nothing more valuable in the universe than he could have sacrificed than his own son, who was God. If God would have given anything else but himself and his son, then it would have not been as loving. But that's what God gives to us to see the glory and the kind of love that God has. And so if you're wondering, does God really love me? After everything I've done, after the sins I've committed, of knowing who I am at my core, does God love me? The cross says yes. He couldn't love you anymore if you are in Christ. He can't love you anymore and there's nothing you're going to do or fail to do that's going to change that. Because what Christ did for you is fixed in history and it will never change. And even when you get to heaven someday, you will see the scars on his hands and they will be proof of his love for you. That is the love with which God loves you. It will last in eternity and you will see it on his hands forever. God loves you in Christ. But we also see the sovereignty of God at the cross. God's sovereignty is really just his absolute rule, his absolute control over all things. Nothing happens in all of existence unless God approves that it will happen and even ordains that it should happen. Nothing happens outside of his notice or his 
say so. And that includes the cross. The cross wasn't an accident. God knew from the beginning what humanity would become and what it would cost him. He knew. And so when we look at the cross, we see a very similar thing of what Joseph told his brothers. If you're not familiar with the story of Joseph, Joseph, because he was the favorite child of his father, was, uh, and was, I would say, a quite a little arrogant young man. You know what it's like to have siblings who parade around. But um, he was unjustly portrayed by his brothers. And his brothers left him for dead in a pit, and they decided to sell him into slavery. And he ultimately ends up rising in the ranks of where he is, and then he's forgotten by a king who dies, and he gets unjustly left in jail for years to rot away. It would have been easy for Joseph to think, God, what are you doing? Why did you put me into a family that my brothers would want to murder me and then sell me into slavery and lie to my dad? Why would you put me in a position to bring me up in a kingdom to only ultimately end up in prison? Why would you do that, God? It would have been easy for Joseph to say that. But when Joseph finally sees his brothers, this is what he says to them. As for you... You meant it for evil against me when you threw me in that pit and, throw, and sold me into slavery. But God, God meant it for good to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. You know what Joseph is saying? Joseph recognized God meant it for good. God didn't sin against me. God didn't do me any wrong. That was what my brothers did. But God was certainly not out of control at that point. God knew what was happening. And God said, you know what, Joseph? I'm going to use the evil actions of your brother to bring about the good. That your whole family is going to come into Egypt and they don't have to die from this famine, this famine in the land. And on top of that, for generations to come, Israel will exist alongside the Egyptians and be provided for. And so many people will be saved. It's the same thing that happens at the cross. There's a song I like. I don't like all of their songs, but there's one I particularly like because I think it reflects the way we really feel sometimes, if we're honest. It's a song called Vice Versus. It's written by Switchfoot. And it's the songwriter, he's struggling with the sovereignty of God and what he sees in the world as evil and the experiences he has in his life. And this is what he writes. Where is God in the night sky? Where is God in the city life? God, where are you in the earthquake? God, where are you in the genocide? Where are you in my broken heart? Everything seems to fall apart. Everything feels rusted over. Tell me that you're there, God. I'm looking around me and I don't see much good. Where are you, God? Are you still in control? Are you still there? But the cross assures us that the most wicked evil can turn out for the greatest good. That God may not be the cause of evil, but evil will serve his good purpose. Evil will serve God's good purpose. The worst sin that was ever committed is that humanity took 
Jesus, the Son of God, who had nothing wrong and everything great and good about him and nailed him to a cross like a criminal. To hate or to murder the Son of God is worse than any sin because God, Jesus, is that valuable, is that great. But if God can make good come from that situation, from the cross, I don't know what you're going through, but God can make good come through any evil. Anything that's happening in your life that you feel wronged or is just out of place. And so maybe you're facing the pressure of finances right now with the coronavirus going on. And you're just racked with anxiety. You don't know what you're going to do. Maybe there's been some injustice done to you that someone has wronged you in a way that is just horrible, that is horrendous, that was not owed to you, that was not justified, and has scarred you your entire life. Maybe you're lonely, you're isolated, you feel like you have no one else. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks. Maybe it's over already. Maybe you lost someone. Could be a friend. Could be a relative. Could be your child. You had a miscarriage. You had a child who committed suicide. You had a child that was accidentally killed. Maybe even facing the consequences of your own sin and things that you have done just seems unbearable and you're ready to give up. God, I just can't do it anymore. I've repented, and I know you forgive me, but this is harder than I ever imagined. Or maybe you're suffering physically, and you're just in a tremendous amount of pain, and you know there's no real end in sight. You say, God, what are you doing? Are you still there? And God says to you in the cross, look, See, look at the cross of Christ. I am still there. I am still in control and I can and I will redeem and give you hope. You may not see it. You might not even ever know about it in this life, but you can trust me because I am working it out for good in the same way that I worked the cross out for your good. Trust me. Remember, look at the proof. It's there, it's there on the cross. You know, in sermons like these, a lot of times people will go, well, what's the point? What's the point, Jordan? It's just obviously something that made me think, something that maybe challenged you a bit to think differently about the cross. How do we respond? Scripture tells us how to respond. You want to know what change looks like? You want to be someone who's healed? You want to be someone who has peace? You want to be someone who loves like only God can love? You want to be someone who is able to kill their sin? What, Corinthians, what Paul says to the Corinthians is applicable here. So you know how we're transformed from one degree to another? when we with unveiled face 
behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. You cannot help but look at the cross and be changed. That will give you hope to get through the next situation or whatever you're in. That will help you to be the husband that you need to be and lay down your life for your family. That will help to give you the peace that you need with the anxiety that you are racked with when you look at the cross and remember what God has done for you. That is why the cross is the centerpiece of Christianity and the death of Christ is so significant. Let's pray. God, we are so thankful for what you have done in glorifying yourself but bringing about such good for us, Lord. That you have made yourself known to us and have done it most clearly at the cross. And because of that, we can be satisfied in every longing and every desire and every want we've ever had. It can be found in you, Lord. And there's no one who has it more. Thank you for not withholding yourself from us, for withholding your son for us. Thank you for making yourself known in all things, Lord, that we might be satisfied with what is truly the greatest, Lord. Help us to live that way. Help us to live that way this week, Lord, in the mundane in every hour of our lives to remember it is about you and about your glory, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.